1: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Hi Molly, my name is Carla. I'm 21 years old and from Southern California. I found your podcast earlier this year. It was not too long after I was sent home from a psych facility, after I had unsuccessfully tried to take my life. It was while I was at the facility that I was diagnosed with borderline personality, which I had never heard of. So when I came home, I did tons of research on it and I found myself just feeling very hopeless. Like, damn, this is is what I have. This is who I am. And the meds that I was put on really just made things worse. So I just needed something, someone to make me feel like I was gonna be okay. And that's when I found your podcast. When I tell you, you were the first person after having worked with an entire psychiatric team and therapists, you were the first person who made me feel like you actually cared. First person to make me feel seen and heard and um i could tell that you're very passionate about helping people and you're so right that the medical model at least in the u.s is really fucked up so i'm just so thankful for you for people like you so thankful that you have this podcast and uh, i just wanted to tell you thank you and uh, i love you (laughs) okay bye hello everyone and
0: welcome from the borderline i'm your host wally and i don't want to talk to your personality i want to talk to your soul the idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes you can do this with your personality too you can perform emotional alchemy you've always had the power you just didn't know that and now you do On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. all right everyone here we are for another episode of back from the borderline welcome to new listeners and welcome back to returning listeners carla thank you so much for this beautiful voicemail it brings me so much happiness to know that my podcast can be a companion for you in your recovery journey and i'm sorry to hear that you went through what sounded like some pretty traumatic experiences during your time navigating through the medical model of mental health. You know, there are some amazing therapists out there and I would wager to say that the majority of people that are in the mental health space working in these sectors, they mean well. And most people enter this career to really help people. My activism and the things I talk about are meant to draw attention not to the individuals but the systems and the structures and these theories that have kind of governed our way of viewing different ways of being and thinking in the world that really started to solidify in the 1990s when the serotonin hypothesis really took hold, perpetuating the belief that Our negative emotional states, primarily depression, are due to chemical imbalances in our brains. And now this theory is being debunked at the highest levels of academia now, and you'll see a lot of infighting going on at the time of recording this podcast, which is now in October 2023, if you're listening into the future. But what we can take away from all of this infighting within the psychiatric profession is that When old beliefs die, they struggle and fight, right? And we're seeing a lot of these old paradigms die. And ironically, this paradigm of chemical imbalance isn't even that old. I mean, if we're thinking historically, it started to come into popularity late 80s, early 90s, and here we are in 2023. So it's only been about 20 or 30 years where we've really viewed psychological suffering in this way. I believe everyone needs to pursue their own individual path in healing. And for some people, medication can really be helpful. For some people, psychiatric disorder and dysfunction labels can be incredibly empowering. And then for some, it can be harmful and disempowering, both of these things. And I don't want to split black and white on... Either of these paths on this podcast, because this podcast is about being dialectical, about seeing both sides, about being able to hold two opposing beliefs at once. But if we get too stuck in to one kind of ideology, if we just dig our heels in and say, yes, psychological suffering, depression, anxiety, these disorder dysfunction labels are due to genetic. Or chemical imbalances in broken brains and that the way to fix or cure these things is through taking xyz steps that everybody else takes takes the same medications it doesn't strike me as something that seems to be working because mental health outcomes are only worsening and so it seems as though what we need is take the good parts and helpful parts from this medical model and from psychiatry and figure out what's not working and find something where we can come to a better balance and the reason why i share some of these opposing beliefs and try to advocate against the medical model of mental health is because we've fallen so far to the extreme towards the medical model and disorder and dysfunction labels that we're not seeing the other side. So I'm trying to bring light to and shed light upon the other side in different ways of thinking. There are lots of other quote-unquote BPD or disorder label podcasts that talk about the symptoms of said disorder and dysfunction labels and how to cure or overcome these symptoms, and that's just not what this podcast is about. Interestingly, I just received a more critical review on Apple Podcasts, which I normally don't talk about those things, but I keep in my more negative or critical reviews seeing I tried to find a podcast for BPD and I just don't like this podcast. Um, This podcast is not about BPD and there's a reason why individuals who are seeking out a podcast for individuals quote unquote with quote unquote borderline personality disorder are going to tune into this podcast and probably find that it isn't what they're looking for. And guess what? That's totally okay. There are lots of other podcasts and YouTube channels and Instagram accounts that cater exactly to this, that are dedicated to pursuing healing through the framework of what is known as borderline personality disorder. But that is not what my content is going to be circulating around. Individuals who identify with the traits of many disorder and dysfunction labels will be able to find validation and healing through the work that I do. But if you are seeking a podcast, quote unquote, about BPD, that's not what you will find here. Navigating through critical feedback of my work has been a really good personal exercise for me in my own recovery journey as someone who struggles deeply with seeking validation outside of myself and also really, really feeling neurosomatically triggered when I see critical feedback, it is a good practice for me to see that sift through the feedback, Sift through what feels true. What are things that I can take away from critical feedback and apply to my work to make the experience better for my listeners? And also, maybe incorporate, um, you know, different things for myself in terms of how I can improve as a content creator and person. Something I personally struggle with is getting very excited in conversations. And tending to interrupt other people. I listened back to my interview with Naomi um, in the dreams episode and I listened back to all my interviews and I was like, oh, I need to just chill out and not get so excited and interject in the conversation so much because I know listeners are tuning into these episodes to hear from my guests and not necessarily from me. So there are lots of ways that I can improve And maybe you can relate to feeling really activated physically when you see a negative comment or someone says something about you or makes a comment or review about your own work. And I'm just sharing this to open up about the life behind the microphone for me. So thank you again, Carla, for this beautiful voicemail. And I hope that this little break and intro before we dive in was helpful level setting for the direction of where my podcast is heading and maybe address some of you who are seeking out this podcast and seeing the word borderline in the title and automatically assuming that this is what this podcast is about. You know, the word borderline had meaning before it was attached to a personality disorder label. I see The borderline, being back from the borderline is being back from the depths, being back from rock bottom, being back from our darkest moments. And that was articulated so beautifully well in Carla's voicemail. So many of us are at the depth of our struggling and we find ourselves maybe on medications or diagnosed with a label that we aren't quite sure what to do with And I create my podcast for those people, people who have been at rock bottom and want to come back from the borderline. All right, so that's enough digression from me. What are we going to be diving into on today's episode? I have a very special guest and I was really excited about this conversation. And it's beautiful that in the intro, we were able to touch on the serotonin hypothesis of depression because it's reigned supreme as I mentioned for you know two decades now at least and this episode my guest and I really dive in to the nuances of depression from a more depth psychological standpoint In this episode, we'll talk about depression as an altered state of consciousness and how the depressive state fundamentally changes how we perceive the world. We also discuss the experience of having huge gaps in our memory from long periods of dissociation, depersonalization, and derealization during the depressive state, Also discussed is how depression is not a logical or rational thing. It's not something you can just think or manifest your way out of. And also how we can really become very comfortable in our depression. Later on in the conversation, we also discuss how Carl Jung's MBTI personality types are often misunderstood. I'd wager to say that almost everyone on earth has at some point taken the Myers-Briggs personality type test online to find out if you're an introvert or an extrovert or what your different subtypes are. And my guest today has done a significant amount of work on this and is going to be positioning a bit of a different way of looking at this that will help you more deeply understand the purpose of MBTI and how it has really swayed away from its original meaning. I first came across Sarah Mergen on Instagram. She runs a meme page called Carl Jung memes, and as many of you know, I'm a huge fan of Jungian psychology, and Sarah's memes are absolutely incredible, and you just have to go to her meme page to understand what I mean. In early 2001, Sarah posted a guide on her meme page, and she described this guide as being a quote, personal mythology of depression. Through the lens of Carl Jung's work and her other extensive academic research, she is working to expand upon what she originally wrote in this guide through a monthly podcast series that she releases exclusively on Patreon. Here's a quote of what Sarah shared on her own Patreon about her work. She writes, "'Based on my own experience, as well as philosophy, depth psychology, mythology, neuroscience, poetry, and really anything else that I've felt valuable, I've attempted to sketch out a map through hell toward a radical elsewhere. I've spent months bringing together all the research and trying to wrestle it all together into something that approximates an outline or sketch, although this is really the culmination of nearly 10 years of lived experience, both with depression and with the struggles of overcoming it. Sarah represents what I believe to be a beautiful thing happening in the online space. There's a lot of negatives to be said about the internet and social media, but a really beautiful silver lining that I see is the decentralization of the internet. Small to medium-sized content creators with a genuine passion about something are able to create content for others who share that similar interest and Sarah is an example of this. You can tell how much work and heart she puts into what she's doing. She relentlessly studies this field. She is putting together incredible insights and making it accessible for people. This is something that was just not possible 20 or 30 years ago. So it's pretty incredible to be living in a day and age where we can connect with the work of people like Sarah. Through my own engagement on Instagram, that's how I've come across and connected with people just like her, with Naomi, who I interviewed on the last episode, and future guests that you will be hearing on the podcast. And This is just such a beautiful, beautiful aspect of our current online culture that I think deserves to be highlighted as we also move through and navigate how to overcome the more challenging and isolating aspects of online life. So with that being said, let's dive into my interview with Sarah. It is my hope that through listening to our conversation where we both just really share about what we've been through together, I connected with her so much on how she views depression and near the end our more mystical and metaphysical conversations. What I hope you come away with is how little we all actually know about the way that our minds and personalities work. And it is through this acceptance of unknowing is where true healing, transformation, and alchemical transmutation of our suffering really lies. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sarah Morgan.
3: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands.
0: They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and
3: 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. Hi, my name is Sarah Mergen, but I think I'm better known as Carl Jung Memes or uh, Nikias, which is sort of my Patreon name and the sort of unofficial working title of my podcast, which is um, on Patreon. Um, yeah, I, I my main focus is depression, but also just things Jungian in general. And I've just have gotten so many messages that this is a conversation that needed to happen. So very excited.
0: Have you had people reach out and say, are you going to go on back from the borderline?
3: Yeah, actually, um, I've had a lot of people either when I'm kind of asking about like, do you know anybody who's doing work similar to me or like, who should I be talking with or like whose page, honestly, should I be looking at if I'm trying to figure out how to get this message across? Everybody's referencing you. A lot of people said we should talk. So
0: love that. Well, everyone that did that, your dream has come true. Here we are. (laughs) Sarah, her work is really profound. And I think Sarah, what you've done is just, you are like, you're in the meme culture. And <sighs> I'd love I'd love to know one thing that I think would be way cooler than asking you who is Carl Jung in the basics is what's originally sparked your interest in his work? And then how did that become
3: a meme account? A couple of things. A lot of people are like, oh, what's the origin story of Carl Jung memes? And I'm like, Honestly, I kind of just wanted to make a meme account. I just wanted to explore like the medium of memes at some point. And I was looking on Instagram and I noticed that nobody had made a page called Carl Jung Memes. And I was like, okay. And it's funny too. I had started looking for, you know, like meme pages on Enneagram type fours or like INFJs, like MBTI, personality. I was going to do personality. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, there's just no... Carl Jung meme page. Well, somebody's gotta do it. That's you know, maybe the less interesting of the two answers. I think how I got into Carl Jung, it's it's very odd and it's hard to describe because Jung was a like major factor in my household growing up. I'm an only child. You know how you have those childhood friends who have just been with you almost since before you can remember, and you uh. don't even all meeting them, that was him for me. So my mom had this bookcase in kind of the room I would watch TV or like play as a kid that was just filled with books. And anytime I had a question about sort of the mysteries of life, like death, I guess, God, just anything along those lines, she would give me a very Jungian answer. And so he kind of got woven into the metaphysical tapestry of how I understood how the world worked. It wasn't until a lot later that I actually started reading him. Most of what I started to read, I was like, oh, well, this already makes sense. I already know this, but I don't know how I know this. And I think a lot of people do have that experience with him, even without that kind of background. It it created this very interesting relationship between me and his work in the sense that it felt like I was looking back. I guess a better way to put it is that it's a little bit like if you grew up Christian, but you never read the Bible and then you went and read the Bible when you were like 18 just very strange kind of feeling of familiarity. So that's really how that um, began. And it was also kind of difficult because growing up, I would reference him or talk about him. And then everybody would be like, I don't know what you're talking about at all. And so it became on some level a very secret attraction because as a teenager, you're kind of like... How old are you? Do you mind me asking? I'm 26.
0: Yeah. So like... I guess. Are you a millennial? Then is that? Are you still a millennial, or you are on the cusp?
3: I am technically. I think they decided the cutoff is uh, ninety-seven. So I'm born in April of ninety-seven. So like I'm the. You're literally the the pinnacle of cusp. Okay. This was my experience too of
0: when you are that age, like growing up. It wasn't cool to be thinking about metaphysical things, right? Like you kind of you need to conform and. When I was hearing you talk about that, like, what a blessing that you had a mom that would frame these things. Because I've talked about on the podcast, and listeners will be like, "Molly, please, God, don't tell this story again." So I'll I'll share (laughs) like the truncated version. But long story short, I grew up in the Midwest, and my parents—I think they had a lot of religious trauma themselves. So we were just kind of like, there was no really religion in my house. And so when I asked the big questions, um, it was. Are you thinking about that? I was freaked out by what happened before I was born. I'm imagining myself floating in this like liminal space, really freaked me out. I had like a phobia of deep space, deep ocean, and stuff when Mm. I was young. That also terrified my parents, (laughs) like this little child, like you know, asking these huge questions that probably also scared the shit out of them as well. I don't blame them for that. But then I remember just being like, I learned at a very early age whoa these big existential questions scare people and there's something wrong with me that i'm thinking about this stuff so i'm just gonna like shove it down and then lay awake at night and like be terrified of death, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas my partner, he was raised in such, I'm talking about his grandma had like books on Gurdjieff and young, and they had like uh, monks staying in their house, um, Tibetan (laughs) monks. And so he was like, he knew about, he's like you, right? Like his grandma was telling him about samsara when he was like five years old and having these these long conversations with him. And so that really gives you such a strong, Spiritual grounding. Also, what a beautiful person to have as like a a spiritual inner guide as young when when you were young, right? Rather than maybe some fundamentalist Christian beliefs that also might set you up for a lot of like cognitive dissonance, you know. So I think that's really fascinating. You talk a lot about depression, and one of my premium submarines is what I call my Patreon uh, Patreon Uh subscribers he subscribes to your Patreon too. His name's David. He's German. Um, he's just fabulous. Uh, hello, David. And thank <laughs> Hi, you. David. <laughs> hello. But he was just telling me about your work with depression. I think a good place to start is, do you mm. relate with the chronic feelings of emptiness, the deep depression? And maybe you can explain a little bit about your rock bottom moment, because I identify a lot and I find myself drawn to other people who identify with that kind of wounded healer archetype because I believe that no one can be doing the work you're doing unless you have been to the bottom of hell because you can't lead people out of those spaces unless you have wanted to fucking die. You have felt like horrible. So maybe walk us through those dark
3: moments and what that was like for you. It's interesting too because you had mentioned rock bottom moment and I'm not sure how I would place that because there have been like different rock bottoms in different ways. Yeah, I hear you. Um, I will also say that much like Jung was a friend growing up, I guess depression was that for me as well. Uh, I mean, friend isn't probably the best word, but I do recall being like 14 or 13 and my mom kind of looking at me and being like, Sarah, I think you might be depressed. And I remember at the time I was really into like Wicca and paganism and stuff like that. Yeah, And we lived in this kind of beautiful property in the woods. I was like a very rural community. And so I didn't know what to do with that. So I kind of looked it up and it was like, oh, well, you know, St. John's wort, the the flower is kind of the same as like the medicine they would give you for this. Yeah. So I remember I went out into my garden and I started picking St. John's wort and trying to make a tincture out of them to to fix myself. And then that wasn't something anyone really understood, I think you know, my parents were wonderful parents and I had a pretty great life. I just, I really struggled, um, socially in school and I was just different. Like I was just a different little kid. Um, and so that kind of followed me. And I think the big, probably like worst experience of my life. Um, (laughs) it's funny. It followed two things. Um, the first was a very, very bad acid trip and yeah um like terrible and then those the can thing- those
0: can create years of fucked fucked up shit which brings yes. us to the whole thing of like with psychedelics booming right now I have that fear too because you can't just go into psychedelics you mm-hmm. have to because you can they can really destabilize you
3: well it's it's I think the the um root of that word is literally like psyche expanding or or mind revealing i think is actually the uh better uh version of that but yeah yeah so i was 17 when that happened what Um, happened oh that's that's a um, A whole episode yeah that's a whole episode uh but it it involved like being confronted with this impossible object and just losing connection to the world and actually that that does inform some stuff that we'll probably talk about later but Mm -hmm. Um, I fell into a really deep period of derealization, except for at the time, derealization, dissociation, those weren't things that were talked about. My um, psychologist actually didn't know what those terms were, uh, aside from or outside of the perspective of anxiety or PTSD. But as their own disorders, she didn't know. So that happened. And then at around the same time, and this is a weird, weird um, entry point into like the depths of hell, but... I got into Stanford, um, and so that and that's where I wound up going to school. But it was kind of this thing where I had spent my entire life working—well, my entire, you know, teenage life working yeah. to get into a top college. Um, and then no one thought I was going to get in. Uh, and you know, I was just trying to get into UCLA. That was like my dream school since I was really young. Um, but I got into Stanford and I was, like, super derealized. And then all of a sudden this uh, structure of meaning just kind of broke down because I was like, okay, well, I've basically, like, spent every waking moment trying to achieve this thing. And now it's happened. And then everything just kind of crumbled. And, you know, on top of that, as a teenager, I was, I was you know, sleeping maybe four hours a night so I could get, like, my schoolwork done. Like, it was just terrible. But, um, you know, that period of time kind of immediately after both of those events, I was very disconnected from the world. I actually um, stayed in derealization or stayed derealized, I don't even know how to put that properly, but um, for about a year and a half after that trip. And then on top of that, I just, I, I, I kind of still don't know what happened with the Stanford thing, but it just... I realized that it didn't mean anything to my soul i guess if we want to put it into Jungian terminology it just meant almost nothing to me and that realizing it meant nothing to me and so that was like a period of a lot of um i mean frankly like self-harm the thing that's odd is that actually the um deepest moments of my depression i don't remember well i only have like journals of that and I think that actually says a lot about the depressive state is that, from my view, it's an almost altered state of consciousness. Um, And I don't mean that necessarily spiritually. I mean, I mean, it could be spiritual, but like, I mean, literally, like the way that you're perceiving the world is very, very different from kind of how it might ordinarily be. And so when you do find yourself in a very kind of. I mean, not very mentally healthy state, but a more mentally healthy state than average looking back and trying to access that alternate state of consciousness can be very difficult and so yeah. i actually just don't remember really what happened pretty much since i got into stanford all the way into my freshman year most of my freshman year i just don't remember or recall i remember um being on the phone with my mom and just like weeping at the sky at some point and it was really mm-hmm. funny like a bunch of people were walking around being like who's this chick just, just absolutely losing her everything um like at noon on the grass outside but that's you know it 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 just kind of got repressed Fuck,
0: i relate to that so much it's funny because i was just at dinner with a a girl that i just met here um the other day and Mm -hmm. she's been through a ton of trauma she actually went to one of those boarding schools you know that like paris hilton went to like the kind Mm -hmm. where they like abduct you from your home and Try to reform you out in the wilderness and shit, and oh, yeah, some really dark stuff. And um, but we both talked about this of how so there's so much lost, and I I'm the same mm-hmm. way where it's like my sister will sometimes tell me like, do you remember when you da 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 like fill in the blank? And I'm like, I don't remember it at all. There are huge mm-hmm. parts of, I mean, most of my twenty like my adolescence and twenties, I just don't. I don't really remember it. I remember some key moments, but I don't. I have a lot of blocked off memories. Why do you? Why do you think that is? I'm so curious to know your take on like that depression as an altered state of consciousness. Now, like because I relate to that, and I've even had listeners respond to um, me bringing this up before, and they feel the same way.
3: Yeah. um, Well, so I I guess to answer that question, I would have to refer to. this researcher and phenomenologist actually uh matthew ratcliffe who i reference from time to time on my stories um he basically classifies depression or kind of explains depression as what he calls like an existential feeling or an existential state yeah. and so that is something that's actually very different from like the traditional feelings like he kind of thinks that you get the traditional feelings that come with depression like you know sadness being the main one mm. because the way that you are perceiving the world is fundamentally altered and the way that a lot of people will go about describing this kind of breakdown and perception is that they feel cut off from the world right um or you know they feel like the world has become gray or there's like a glass panel and in, in between them in the world in between them and other people like a veil you know yes yeah yeah exactly and that's actually a a very common metaphor and so he describes a lot of that being kind of the breakdown and the ability to perceive possibility itself Hmm. and i love that way of describing it because when you are really depressed when you are on the couch and you are unable to move and people are like why you know like what is bothering you so much it is impossible to put that into words it's it's not logical. It's not rational. Um, it it's not something that you can think your way out of. No. It's a perceptive issue. And so, if you construe depression as being the inability to perceive the possible, among other things, there are some other things that he points out. Um, then it starts to be like, well, you know, to what extent can you remember uh, acid trip? Actually, acid trips are pretty easy to remember in some ways, but. You know, or the last time you you got high, it's an altered state of consciousness. And I, you know, I I don't know that I could describe the mechanisms at play there, but I do think that that makes it inaccessible because to remember what it feels like to lack possibility, to lack even the perception of possibility Hmm. is hard because you're like, well, but there is possibility, you know, if you're doing better and you're reflecting on it.
0: Yeah. Once you're in a different place. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to look back at the most depressed version of yourself and think, how could I have not seen that it could get better? You know what I mean? But it's just, have you ever seen Big Mouth, the cartoon by Nick Kroll?
3: I've I've seen a couple episodes, yeah. So
0: there is an it reminded me so much. I'll have to find the clip and send it to you on Instagram that I'm referencing. But Jessie is a character in Big Mouth. She's Mm -hmm. one of the girls in the series. And when you described that your depression is like one of your earliest friends It immediately reminded me of this episode, because I think that this, um, that big mouth does one of the best interpretations of depression, especially like kind of teenage depression. They depict Mm. depression as Jesse starts to get depressed. And so the way that they choose to depict this in the series is this big purple cat and Mm. it's, it becomes her friend and it's very seductive. This feels
2: so nice. You want to drink some more soupy ice cream? Mmm, okay. Mm, yeah, that's right. How about another blanket? I should get up. It's kind of weird to be in bed in the middle of the day. No, it's
0: not. And they do such an incredible job of it. And when you said that it was your friend, I just, I, I couldn't help but think of that episode. Because when I watched that, I was like, ah, that's an interesting interpretation. Because you get comfortable with being that way, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can totally you get comfortable. And the more you, um, I just, uh, I'm reading a book right now called Daughters of Saturn and it's by a, a Jungian analyst called, named Patricia Reyes. You would love the book, by the way. She okay. she interviews um, or she, she analyzes like some prolific uh, female writers and how they kind of embody these uh, women who are like, have like negative animus kind of stuff going on and how they have to Move out of the belly of the father, drawing on like the Saturn myth and all these things. And she talks about Emily Dickinson, and Mm -hmm. Emily Dickinson was basically agoraphobic. I didn't know that, but she like rarely left her home. And she almost, it's like the more she restricted herself, the more depressed she became. It's like the more comfortable she became with that state, you know, and the more sense it made. I don't know. Those are just the things that came up for me when you were talking about that because. And it just doesn't make sense to anyone else and then when people try to like will you out of that state it's almost like it you want to stick in it even more there's nothing that that anyone can do to get you out of it it's just
3: yes oh so um i i have like a couple of thoughts on yeah, that First please of share all, um, one thing and we can kind of more go in this direction in a second but i know that jung's approach to most things is the idea that everything is driving towards something which he contrasts with Freud you know Freud wanted to go back and look at the root causes Mm. and be like this is happening because of this and Jung's approach pretty much to his entire psychology was like this is happening because it wants this to happen and so from that view depression you know I think from the strict Union perspective on it would be that depression is trying to get you to go in and and deal with something um but the other thing that I would say and this is a uh not a point that disagrees with that but maybe kind of is tangent tangential I guess yeah um is that one of the things that I talk about a lot when it comes to depression is um, horizons and the world and the size of the world, how big the world appears to you. And so when you Mm. get into a really depressed state, there's a lot of kind of evidence for this this feeling of the world shrinking in, the horizon shrinking in. And if you imagine the horizons to be what is possible, then you start to get this kind of vignette where it's like, oh, well, I don't wanna go do this because that isn't gonna result in anything that is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. or i don't want to try and do this because i know that's not going to work and so the experience of being depressed especially if you're talking to other people trying to explain it to other people is that you're locked in a very small room and there's nothing in this room to interest you to make meaning out of (laughs) um it's kind of a miserable existence and then all your friends all your family are just like hey if you don't want to be in the room just go through the door to the depressed person there is no door they're yes. like there's a door there and you're just sitting there like i i do not see a door there <laughs> yes. and i don't know how to convey to you that there is no door um that that is like the key metaphor i often use if i'm trying mm. to help other people deal with loved ones who are depressed is like mm. they can't see what you're seeing they just can't it's that that that's what depression is in some way so how can you help someone with that i just still don't know i feel like We try so
0: hard. And for me, every time I've wanted to help someone that was depressed, it's because if I'm being honest with myself, I'm uncomfortable with their depression. You know, it's making me uncomfortable. I want them to get better so that I don't have to feel those feelings. It draws me back to like my parents when I ask them those questions, right? Don't think about that because they don't want to think about it. It's the same reason why I think a lot of therapists shouldn't really be therapists because they're like (laughs) calling, you know, they're calling their, uh, putting people in psychiatric units when they want to talk about suicide, because I think deep down it kind of touches on something that they're really scared of and they're not capable of helping with it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that someone just has to go through that dark night of the soul and emerge? Like how can someone from your perspective now, having been there, Mm -hmm. what do you wish that someone could do for you if you were in that state again? What's the, what's the most supportive thing anyone could do for you?
3: Oh man. I mean, it really, um, I think one of the very big things that I noticed when I was most depressed is that everybody had kind of I would always put it in terms of everybody having a limit, Mm. like everybody around me. I knew that I could probably ask them for three major um, forgivings of my behavior and that at a certain point, everybody would leave. And so I would actually try like kind of to strategically disperse my bad behavior. And it wasn't even that bad. It was just kind of like, I messed up here. I messed up there. And so then I would be like, okay, well, I can mess up with this person probably one or two more times, but I can't (laughs) mess up with this person anymore. They've had enough. (laughs) Yeah. um, Which is, you know, kind of an awful way to think about it. But another key sort of phenomenological experience of depression is an inability to feel connected to others. And so Mm -hmm. that often results in a attempt to read them or to overread what is going on um and so from that perspective i guess what i probably most would have wanted from people is to just kind of like a consistent theirness that doesn't really need to do anything just a check-in that's like hey i'm still here hey i'm still here hey you're not bothering me blah 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 and I mean, I think that that is like bare minimum, what would have been helpful. But to your question about like what can somebody actually do, I think, um, I know Jung would agree with this. and also in my kind of model that I talk about on Patreon, I reference this theory that's in a book called Hanging on and Letting Go. Um, and that is a more traditional, well-researched um, uh, academic psychological perspective. Mm-hmm. But both Jung and these guys who wrote this book, have kind of the perspective that they're in depression you can either go up or you can go down but you got to go one direction or the other (laughs) and so i believe jung actually wrote a letter to somebody who was dealing with a lot of depression and the summary of this letter that he said the advice that he gave to her was like if i were you which i'm not but if i were I would go eat the best food, I would plant in the garden, I would go help somebody, I would get engaged with life, I would engage my senses, or I would sit with the darkness and I would go in and I would just Mm -hmm. like let it wash over me until a transformation occurred. And I would sit with the images that come up, which it's a very Jungian piece of advice to um, give. And uh, in this book, Hanging On and Letting Go, Um, They talk about something called a lost object, which is, uh, I'm going to have to summarize it, but largely depression to them is a result of attachment to a value that is no longer giving you self-esteem. And so then the answer becomes to either find something else to give you self-esteem or to change your value hierarchy, like change the ways that you value things. So that is either it going out into the world almost recklessly, almost thoughtlessly and engaging with it or going in. And so from a friend, I would probably most want somebody who's just actually for me personally, I would love somebody who doesn't even acknowledge the depression like too much. And it's just like, hey, just come to this concert. Hey, come here, go there, whatever. And just keeps inviting me no matter how many times I say no, just a constant source of there is an external world. Let me bring yes. you into it, even if it doesn't make any sense.
0: It's so interesting how kind of ties back to how when you said that you read Jung, things just kind of intuitively make sense. Mm-hmm. And I often find myself like thinking of things and then I'll read something in like Jung and be like, oh, I kind of thought of that in a way, which really makes me believe in the, the idea of the collective unconscious or something because I do believe that there are certain things that once you've been in like the belly of the beast, as it were, like the, the, the lows of the lows, you start like, and then you really want to get out of there. You start realizing things. And for me with depression, it's interesting this, I'd love to read that book and like read more what they say about the lost yeah. object concept, because I talk a lot about on the, every every podcast I do, the intro is like, you know, I try to get people to see their symptoms as saviors, you know, and even like, Mm -hmm. it kind of was inspired by, um, I interviewed Dr. Lisa Miller, who I think you'd really enjoy too, but she, it's also makes me laugh because your, your metaphor of the door theory, it kind of like shits on her thing a little bit because, (laughs) you know, in a good way, because I think it's a very valid thing. I think you guys, you guys would have a very interesting conversation because, her whole thing is depression is a knock at the door. Like it mm. is literally telling you, like the life you're living is not aligned with you, with your your integrity, your values. It might be you are trying to shove yourself into a box that maybe society wants you to be in. It's like with you, mm-hmm. right? We we got this message that if you get into a really good college and then you just do this, that and the other, right, then it will be all good. But the thing is, is that we often find ourselves, okay, we hit this milestone. For me, it's like, I wanted to shove myself into the hot girl box. I had breast implants. I got, I looked so, I was like the best, like physically I could be. And I was the most depressed. And, and like, cause mm-hmm. I was like you, I grew up, I was an, I was such a nerdy girl. And like, also like, I was very emotionally sensitive and I was always the person that like people, I just didn't get invited to things. You know what I yeah. mean? Because like, <laughs> sure. I, I would find out that there were like, parties and stuff. And like, I just was not invited. Right. And Mm -hmm. like, and I could not understand why, like, because it's not like I was mean to anyone. It wasn't like anything. Like I just, I always was on the outside and I, and boys never really liked me because I was really nerdy. I got a lot of cold sores. You know what I mean? Like I was just like, I was in turmoil in school. I hated Mm. it. And I just wanted to read my books and like not talk to anyone. And it just made it even worse. So then I tried to shove myself and be hot because then mm-hmm. I look like I could get attention from the outside world. And when I grew up, I'm 33. So I'm like older than you. And I was like in the Nicole Richie, Paris Hilton time where it's like, yeah. you needed to be hot, right? Hot, <laughs> Being a hot girl was the thing. And yeah. so when I did that, I achieved it. I moved to LA. I was hot girl. I was going to all of these. I was like going to exclusive parties. I had like a lot of friends that were in the industry and I- I felt more depressed than I had ever fucking been in my entire life. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and it was, it reminds me just a different, same, same, but different your thing with Stanford, right? It's like we achieved our pinnacle thing yeah, and then we're like, now what? Right. And I really think that that's people experience that same thing. But then when Lisa Miller says it's a knock at the door, why I think you guys would have such a fascinating conversation is it's like, but when you're depressed, you don't even know the door is there. You can't hear the knock at the door, but sitting with that darkness is really really important and if anyone's depressed right now right like that's what helped me and now when i do get depressed i think that's what i ask myself i ask myself questions like maybe how am I not living in alignment with my values? Cause I think a lot of people also don't know their values. I didn't like, what do Mm -hmm. I value? Like real values. Like I value honesty. I value integrity. I value creativity. Right. And like when I actually wrote down all the things that I valued, and this was even as recently when I I just thank God got to quit. I was working in tech for 10 years and I just like, I was really good at my job, but like it was not doing anything for me except giving me a big paycheck. And but I had lived for so long without money that I was like, okay, I got the big manager tech job. Like, How could I walk away from this? But when I wrote down all my values, I was like, no wonder I'm fucking depressed because I'm so out of alignment with what I actually care about. But society told me to value money, security, all of this thing when Mm -hmm. like inside I wanted to be a nerdy bohemian creative girl and have amazing conversations like this. And it's like, Now, yeah. Do I get depressed? Sure. Like almost every single month because I have raging like PMS, but, Mm -hmm. but at least I'm living in, in alignment with my integrity. So I don't get to the bottom of the barrel like I used to, but I also know that I probably will have more dark nights of the soul in my life where I'll feel like I'm at the bottom, but at least now I know that I can come back out of that, if that makes sense. And I think when you have your first one, like in your twenties, when you experience that first thing, because you haven't been through the cycles before, it really feels like this is it, like this is the worst it can possibly get and it can't get better. And so that's why I can understand why people make really drastic life ending decisions. And it's heartbreaking because they can't, they haven't seen the cyclical
3: nature of things. Oh, absolutely. Well, and that's the other thing is that I think I mentioned earlier that depression I mean, across a number of the different theories that I utilize for kind of my mashup of theories, a lot of people talk about that as being a failure of adaptation. Hmm. Um, that's literally actually what Jung says about it. And that phrase in and of itself sounds awful. You know, it's like, oh, I just didn't adapt well enough. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, you know, there is a constant, constant interplay between the self and the world, the subject and the object and you need to allow the world to affect you but you also need to be able to be yourself in the world and then within that dynamic of course you have the ego and the self and the unconscious and the persona and all these different um you know parts things yeah parts that are wanting different things and asking for different things and so to be adapted to all of that well, and then on top of that, the world isn't just the material world. It's what you have projected onto it. Yes. It's also your memories and all of this stuff to be fully adapted into that system is very, very difficult. And so <laughs> depression for Jung, it's funny if you look at what he's written about, he doesn't seem to spend a lot of time on like mental health disorders themselves, um, which is hilarious for like a practicing physician. Um, But, you know, he just kind of ties most of it to a failure of adaptation. I think he was With- very prescient. Don't you think, have you read a lot of Adler?
0: Because I feel like Jung and Adlerian psychology are also very like, at ad- ad one. Adler mm-hmm. also talked a lot about like, which sounds kind of savage, but if it makes sense. Lack of adaptation on Jung's side and Adler really believed like some of it was like a lack of courage. And mm-hmm. I feel like those two, and the way he describes it, it can sound very like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but it's actually not that at all. It's very much like, and when I think about when I was at my most depressed, I did lack courage and I did lack yeah. adaptation. And so I love what you're saying because it, it rings so true. And I think sometimes we have a hard time being
3: honest with ourselves about that. Oh, totally. Well, I mean, I think there's the part of yourself that's lying to yourself, I guess, but then there's also the part of yourself that doesn't even have a hope or a chance of being honest with yourself you know and and so i think that that's like a place where you can find a lot of self-forgiveness but also you need to find an answer and you know you're right like the lack of courage i think that that is a um an introvert's dilemma to depression as well if we we were to put it into the terms of kind of like Jungian typology
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
3: because typically the introvert finds themselves in depression because they have given the world too much power. They've actually projected their power out onto the world, onto the things around them. They've um, made it seem like the world is this big, terrifying place, um, when really all of that is just their psychic content that that is really just innate within them, but they don't I'm realize. I'm being called that. out right now. That is literally <laughs> me.
0: That is literally me,
3: yeah. Um. I mean, I think it's really worth... Uh, reading any of psychological types, which is the book that I've been kind of just (laughs) mired in for the last five weeks um, when it comes to depression or really any mental struggle, because um, this was Jung's book that is most well-known for being his book on personality, and it's Mm. kind of where MBTI came from. And so a lot of people look at the book and they think like, oh, that's just Jungian personality. And it's like, no, Jung (laughs) wrote this. Well, and it's interesting that you bring up Adler because he actually wrote this, first of all, to understand how he and Freud and Adler and all these um, different psychologists theorists. Psychology yeah, daddies. <laughs> psychological daddies, um, <laughs> you know, would look at the same phenomenon and, uh, and just get a completely different interpretation of it. And he was like, yeah. why is that happening? But mm. more interestingly, he was trying to understand the relationship between the self and the world, between like the object and the subject is the way he puts it. Um, and that he thought, you know, at least at the time of writing that book, that this relationship between these two opposites was, it, it was everything. It was the big thing and um, could explain kind of a lot of different mental health disorders. hmm so it's a, it's a worthwhile read if people listening to this are trying to get into Jung. What's that, the title of be. the
0: book again, Sarah? I'm going to write it down too, and I'll link it in the description.
3: Um, the book is Psychological Types, um, and it's a long book. It is yeah. difficult. Um, you have to sit down with it. At the um, end of the book, Chapter 10 is his like basic definitions of the eight types. He has eight types, um, mm-hmm. which then... Became uh, MBTI Myers Briggs as we know. This it. is like
0: such a beautiful transition because that's <laughs> the, it. Really has like wow, I'm proud of us because this yeah. has gone so beautifully and opened into it because that's really like the meat of what we are going to discuss. Mm-hmm. You know, I um I wrote this down for listeners because I think it will help because uh, listeners. Hello, we're addressing you directly, breaking that fourth wall. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, I, Sarah was posting about MBTI the other day on her Instagram stories, and I DM'd her, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is what we should we should talk about this because, you know, also our generation." Gen Z, millennial, we love like a test. We love an online quiz. We love to be typed. We love to be put into a certain box. We love like the do I have BPD quiz. We love all these things. Everyone has probably taken a personality test. And I, Sarah has a lot of knowledge about this. And I also was doing a little bit of digging myself. And for the listeners, MBTI stands for the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. Mm -hmm. And it says from our friend Wikipedia, it's based on the influential theory of psychological types proposed by Carl Jung in 1929 and who speculated that people experience the world using four principal psychological functions, sensation, intuition, feeling and thinking, and that one of these four functions is dominant for a person most of the time. The four categories are introversion, extroversion, sensing, intuition, thinking, feeling, judging, perceiving. And according to the MBTI, each person is said to have one preferred quality from each category. I found something really interesting because, so Jung believed that for every person, each of the functions is expressed primarily either in an introverted or extroverted form, which you touched on. And Mm -hmm. it said, based on Jung's original concepts, Briggs and Myers developed their own theory of psychological type. On which uh, MBTI is based, and what I gathered, and then I want you to just talk about this from your perspective. I also think it's funny. We talked about this before we started recording, but both Sarah and I uh, are uh, INFJs. Yeah. Um. And so I thought that was that was an interesting little um, connection point. But what I really, what stood out to me when I was doing this very very brief research before we started recording was that you know. MBTI is sometimes a bit controversial because it's very static. They kind of like are putting people in these boxes while Carl Jung, anyone who knows his work, he did not intend for it to be these static boxes um, from what I understood. And when it comes to personality, Carl Jung, I think would have balked at the idea of a permanent personality disorder, right? Because he believes that in individuation you can grow and change, that you you could be one personality type At one point in your life and because i know for a fact i took the um mbti when i was in my early 20s and Mm -hmm. i always used to get e because guess what i tried to make myself an extrovert and what you said earlier was so fucking like on the nose because I experienced, I think part of my depression, Sarah, honestly, was like the result of extreme social fucking burnout of like, Mm -hmm. I tried so hard to be the party girl, to be like the fun one, to go out all the time. And I didn't realize that like I am a true introvert, you know, and, (laughs) (laughs) but, and I kind of, and you can take these tests and you can almost take them about the person that you're trying to be rather than the person that you actually are. So. Now that's my little rant. I'd love to hear you talk about this and like what your your perceptions on all of this are.
3: Yeah, well, Um. so first of all, what you just said, I mean, like you can take that test and it can type you with who you are in that moment, which I think actually lends more credence to Jung's view, which is exactly what you said. If he saw what had become of his theories today, I think he would have a seizure. And I have to say, I think MBTI is really valuable in certain ways, but um, there are a lot of differences. The first thing that I want to point out is that when you are given the MBTI test, you are tested for introversion versus extroversion, sensing versus intuition. And I should just quickly summarize right now. Sensing is kind of the function that has to do with the physical objective world. It's the five senses. Um, people who are sensing dominant are usually unfair or yeah, unfairly characterized as being not very deep people. Um, mm-hmm. but that's not at all what it is, but that's just kind of like how you might see it. Whereas intuition is the meaning-making function, it's the image finding function, it's the symbolic function. And so if you are kind of a creative philosophical type, you're probably gonna say, Oh, I'm an intuitive feeling thinking, that one's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing that it tests you for is judging and perceiving. Um, That one
0: always trips me up. I'd love to hear you
3: talk about that
0: because I'm not quite sure about that one. I've never really understood those two.
3: So (laughs) what happened with the MBTI is that they took Jung's original theories and they just kind of like blended them all up and then like reformed them. So it's the same material, but it's just put in a very, very different way that changes the system altogether. Mm. Um, Judging and perceiving are two words um, that Jung would have said are the irrational types versus the rational types. And so irrational being perceiving, rational being judging. Um, And he does use judging and perceiving a little bit too. Uh, But those aren't necessarily types that he would have typed for. They're kind of characteristics. So for Jung, um, what it was is that you have the four functions. We've got feeling, thinking, intuition, sensing. Mm -hmm. Those are just the things that your brain does. And people typically prefer to do one of those four things over the other three. On top of that, you have your attitude, which is introversion versus extroversion. And that is largely just do you find your sense of self in the world, in the world of objects? That is extroversion. Objects could also be other people, right?
0: Yeah. People places um, things kind of thing, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh.
3: Introversion is finding your sense of self inside yourself. Like it's it's um so it doesn't even have much to do with being shy or loving people. It's it's where your um attention is regularly directed. Right. That's fascinating. So- yeah. He thought that, um, you know, you're either an introvert or an extrovert or you're somewhere in between. He thought a lot of people couldn't be classified. So that's a big difference with MBTI. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you have one of these attitudes and then you have one of these functions you prefer, those get smashed together and then that becomes your type. So for Jung, it wasn't that you were an INFJ. It was just that you were an introverted intuitive who may use... Uh, their feeling or thinking function. Mm-hmm. Um, and where the judging and perceiving fits into this is that he thought thinking and feeling were just opposite ways of making a judgment about the world, whereas intuition and sensing are opposite ways of literally perceiving kind of what is around you before you make a judgment about it. And so it's kind of whether you're a judge or perceiver literally just means you prefer to take in all the raw data, or do you prefer to like try and fit it into a rigid structure? The way that they characterize the P and the J on MBTI has nothing to do with Jung's theories at all. It's interesting, but it has yeah. nothing to do with
0: it. That's um, so fascinating, it reminds yeah. <laughs> me of also like, it's funny because whenever I would think of judging, I'm like, you're judgy, you're a judgy judger. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> And it's so not that, right, like no. especially based in, based upon, but it just goes to show how it even reminds me of things like dbt right where it's just we've jumbled up there's so much zen in 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 dbt therapy it's like mm-hmm. so much of what psychology is right now especially like pop psychology or instagram carousel psychology i sometimes call it like bpd123 on my podcast in uh-huh. a very disparaging manner um because it's so much of the meaning has been lost so much of the nuance yes. has been lost and that's why I love people like you and pages like yours and why I think it's so important because it just makes me really think about and I think about this all the time much more than I probably should but it's just we can't see the nuance anymore it's almost Mm -hmm. like collectively we uh, why do you think that is like why do we want stuff in such Basic, like if something doesn't have nuance, also like it doesn't even sing to me. You know what I mean? Like if something is very basic and it's just, we've gotten to a point where we want everything to be one, two, three. Step one, step two. Here's what you do, and Mm -hmm. you actually can't find true answers that way. And true transformation, you actually do have to. I think even if you're an extrovert, there still is has to be an inner life, right? You have to go. That's why I say on the podcast all the time. I'm just sharing my my personal experience. And my hope is with this episode, and just like anything, is that something that we say, one thing that you say could just like provide that little spark in someone's mind. And they have their own aha moment and they hear something inside of themselves that helps them take that next step, right? Because yeah. it, it's, it's just not going to be given to you if a diagnosis and a pill and a here do this, that, and the other, right? It's a. Mm-hmm. Why have we lost that nuance? Why do you think we're afraid of that?
3: Well, um this is this might wind up being a long answer, but I'm going to try and connect a bunch of different things yeah. here together. Um the place where I start my model of depression is actually in the realm of metaphysics. And uh I, this will get to nuance <laughs> in just a second, but
0: All right, folks, we're going in metaphysical. This is going to can get any deeper than this. Let's do this.
3: Literally, um, you know, metaphysics, that's a very intimidating word for a lot of people. It's just the study of what we consider to be real. So if you say like God is real, that's a metaphysical statement. If you say God is not real, that's a metaphysical statement. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people think that if they align themselves with science and rationality and the contemporary spirit of the age that we live in, which is not a bad way to go, but they do think that if they do that, That they are no longer making metaphysical claims that can't be substantiated right it's like oh well i'm a scientist i'm a rationalist um i believe in what we can prove and therefore i'm not you know out here believing in stuff that doesn't exist right unfortunately that in and of itself is metaphysical you can't escape it because there are mysteries there are just Yes. Fundamental mysteries, and so you have to at some point glom onto a view uh, and perspective about reality that you can't prove. And so that's just one of them. But the one that our culture has really uh, grabbed onto, um, and I talk about this a lot my first couple episodes. This comes from a philosopher named uh, Federico Campagna, um, is this kind of view of reality that says that nothing can really be real unless we can put it into language. Um, And he argues that this is the metaphysical claim of our age, that we went from a world that was defined by God to a world that is now defined by language, concepts, data, and what is provable. And It's like
0: Descartes, right? Like I just talked about this two episodes ago. I think, therefore, I am. Some people say Mm -hmm. that that was like the worst thing that ever happened, right? Because we've lost the sauce after that.
3: Yeah, and and so one of the things that happens if you say that the only things that are real are those that can be captured in language is that you lose a dimension of life and of experience that Federico Campagna calls, and I I just adopted this word from him, the ineffable. But it literally just means everything that can't be uh, captured in language. And when you think about it, like the way that the sun hits your arm on like a spring day and how that's different from a summer day, that's Mm -hmm. ineffable. You can't quite put that into language. That is just an experiential thing. And most of mental health disorders, if we even want to call them that, are actually ineffable experiences. They're things that cannot be measured, put into language. That's why I was talking about some of the metaphors people use to describe depression to begin with, that sense of being detached from the world. That's a metaphor. And you can't get a diagnosis by coming in and saying, I feel detached from the world. That doesn't mean anything to the scientific viewpoint. So, we find ourselves in this world increasingly now where in order to exist, like in order to consider yourself real, you mm-hmm. have to be able to put a word on yourself, an identity, <sighs> a label, a um, personality yes. type, a uh, yeah. mental health issue, you know, and um, or a symptom. You have to be able to say this is a symptom of such and such thing or yeah. um, it it just goes on and on and on and and it deprives people of being able to sit on the couch when they're really really depressed and just be like, okay, what is it that I'm actually experiencing?
0: Yes, it cuts us off from our the the inner knowing of our bodies, right? Yes, like absolutely. It, I used to, Sarah. Like, I was someone who really told myself a lot I was really stupid for a super long time, right? And so, really, I, I, oh yeah, I, 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 and um. So anything that would like, if I even heard about metaphysics, I would be like, whoa, I'm too stupid to understand that. Now I've thankfully like come out of my, like that silly reality because Mm -hmm. I'm not stupid. And um, I think I didn't do as well. in school, I was the person that had to work really hard. I got straight A's because I was a chronic people pleaser, but I mm-hmm. had to work hard. Zaz, my husband is the mo- the annoying guy that like would not study at all and show up and ace the test because he's just like has so much confidence and he just like he knew school was kind of bullshit. Like he yeah. he just like he sailed through because he knew he was a he's like a little anarchist. I wanted to conform so bad and I wasn't School systems for people like us who are very intuitive, who like just had a feeling, we get that beaten out of us very early. Right. Like I just no. I just finished reading um Healing the Shame That Binds You by John Bradshaw. Like OG, just kind of like uh <laughs> I just love I love this man so much. He's such a sweetheart. But um in such a 90s like figure in therapy, but he is a very intuitive feeling person. And he gave an example of like when he was in school, how um he this this intuitive function was beaten out of him because he said that a teacher proposed this very complex problem, like a, a story problem, my least favorite things in school, because it would like send me into anxiety. But yeah. he said that he just had a feeling he got the right answer and uh-huh. he didn't know how. And the teacher said, So how did you come to that conclusion? And he said, well, I just sense it. I just feel like that's the answer and I can't explain it. And the teacher, he said it was one of the most shaming experiences of him in school. He goes, she was like, you can't just sense something. You have to Mm -hmm. have facts. You need to back it up. And he, but he was right. (laughs) And so it's just like, we are forgetting that, that part of us, you know, and since I have done this where it was such a challenge for me to start sitting down and kind of doing like, you know, free writing, like dialogue, dialoguing with different parts of myself, doing active imagination with my dreams. And Mm -hmm. when I started free writing about my dreams, I was like, okay, this, all this metaphysical stuff is starting to make sense to me because I have my Mm -hmm. own inner knowing that I have never even tapped into. And that is a lot of why I had like chronic hives all the time. I was getting lots of kidney infections. It's like, and then I was really depressed. My body wanted me to go within and like seek its wisdom. And yes. we don't understand these things. And it just reminds me too of like, I'm a pretty big geek with, I I don't even like calling it UFO stuff because I just think that's so stupid. You know, like, of course, we're not alone in this universe. Like, are you yeah. kidding me? And like, <laughs> and um. <laughs> I I mean, you just have to go back in history. Like That's why I love um, mystics so much. People have been seeing other beings or having psychedelic experiences. There are things out there that we can't understand. And Mm -hmm. I think that to be able to open, if my listeners can take anything from this, of just like opening your eyes to that and like seek your own wisdom and I'm curious to know, Sarah, like I kind of cut you off with your metaphysical exploration. So I want to like hand the ball back to you with that. And Mm -hmm. also just talk about how do you tap into that, you know, within yourself? How do you do that? Is it through your exploration of young? And also if you want to just, I want to keep you going on the track with the metaphysics thing, but it just, Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but like hop in and add that other color.
3: No, no, absolutely. I mean, there's there's so many different directions to go with this. I actually identify this like issue that we have with our metaphysical um I guess assumptions about the world. I think that that is one of the reasons why we have such a difficult time treating mental health disorders, treating um anything really that has to do with the psyche or dealing with the psyche because under that particular way of viewing reality most of what happens in the psyche especially the stuff that jung was trying to get at doesn't exist it literally it gets dropped out of existence it takes on a um different level like the same as a ghost or something we see it it as crazy like paranormal almost yeah And, and and then it's just like a dream that you had and you're like oh well that dream somehow it was so funny i was talking to my boyfriend i love my boyfriend but Um, I was, we were talking about dreams and I realized that there was something in the way that he was talking about his dreams that he, he was regarding them as less real than the physical table in front of us. Yep. And I was like, why? I mean, I get it. It's not real in the way that like a table can be collectively perceived and like a table in its existence, I guess, can be proven, but it is a fact that you had that dream like last night. You can't negate that. Yes. And there's a reason that you had that dream. Yes.
0: And part yeah. of you is literally giving you that image for a reason.
3: Yeah. But it's crazy because like when you really feel into it, the way people talk about this stuff, it's like there's, they they have, I don't know, This this gets off into the weeds a little bit, but I think that there is a feeling of reality that we can bestow onto things. Hmm. Like there's a sense of this is real that is less real this is real that is not real at all and it's a way of kind of deciphering our environment and we apply that to ourselves we apply that to the metaphors we use to try and communicate ourselves and um you know to your your example about (laughs) solving problems in school via maybe something other than facts or whatever Mm -hmm. it's like there's not a lot of words that you can apply to intuition especially of all of them intuition is the most silent of the four functions and jung even describes intuitives often have a really hard time i think he almost uses this exact phrase they have a hard time telling people or explaining how they came to the the um the conclusion yeah the conclusion that they they just got Mm -hmm. to um, not just because it's a almost entirely unconscious process that yes. motivates intuition, but because intuition itself often is perceived as a symbol or as a a feeling that just goes beyond language. Ineffable, um,
0: right? Ineffable, like, exactly, yes. Like literally what you said, like I have sometimes like these realizations ever since I've done like inner work, mm-hmm. I'll just be lost in thought and I'll have a realization, but there's no way I could explain that to anyone. Like I couldn't even sit down and ha- make a podcast about it, right? But the thing is is that you know that feeling where certain things click into place and you're like you recognize something or you you hear yeah. kind of a phrase in your mind and and it all clicks into place. But the thing is, is that if I explained sometimes some of my biggest aha moments that I've had that I think genuinely have like helped me the most, more than any medication, more than any therapy session, people would think I'm nuts. And it reminds me of like, I just talked on my last episode with Dr. Bruce Levine and he was just saying how we view schizophrenia, right? Like Mm
3: -hmm. if we
0: didn't think that hearing voices was, I mean, there are tribes and like our ancestors, if someone heard voices, like that person might be literally treated with reverence. Yes, they might be hard to deal with. They might be more difficult to interact with if you're a normie kind of person, but they would still treat this person with utmost reverence because they are somehow in touch with this world that we have become disconnected from. And it's like, I think we're scared of that, but there's so much wisdom there
3: yeah absolutely well and even in the case of schizophrenia just knowing that the human mind is capable of that amount of um symbolic logic right yes. because in schizophrenia it's it, it, it can be a very um uh patternistic logic that is completely detached the way that jung probably would put it um is like completely detached from the object and so yeah. that would be a little bit like the logic of the unconscious becoming palpable yes. um, and the world and it's just like okay well you might not be schizophrenic but that same trail of twisting logic is still going on unconsciously yes um and maybe you can access that if you do acid or something like that and see yeah. the terrifying depths of what is yeah. in your head Yeah, but um you know we we tend to just look away f- From that, and then the other thing that we do that is so odd is that we try to pretend like that doesn't affect us. Like if you are mentally well, so to speak, that somehow just that stuff doesn't um, exist for you. It doesn't cloud your logic. It's just something that other people experience, and the those people are just not as quote in touch with reality. This is like one of the big things that we say: people who are mentally ill. Aren't in touch with what is real, and it's like, well, who is defining what is real, and how are we defining? Reality? That scares
0: people, though, Sarah. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, if I legitimately, there are so many people in my life, or if I have this conversation, they're like, "Oh, here we go," you know? You, you <laughs> yeah. know, you know. Yeah. And and I'm like, nope. Why? Why is that the reaction? <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. part of you is shutting down at that. It's because you don't even want to think about it. And I think it's because it scares people because it it freaks them out. It's the same reason why a psychiatrist will like commit someone if they maybe start talking about suicide, if it's just like an exploration. I'm not saying all psychiatrists or therapists do this. There are amazing ones out there. And also I'm sure there's very good reason to, to do that, to save someone's life. I'm not trying to say that, but we're scared of these things. Like people are afraid of it, and they don't want to touch it. And especially when you start saying things like, "Well, what is reality?" Right? Like Saz mm-hmm. is like balls deep in simulation theory right now, and like, oh, oh interesting. Yeah, right. He's like going all into this, and we can, we won't even touch that on this episode. But you know, I have also a theory, like simulation theory. I have another thing that I think you'll find fascinating, just as a woman and someone who's also into Jung. When I hear people talking about simulation theory, or even when I hear like people with great, great prolific minds like Elon Musk, right? Some of these people that are thinking about these things very deeply. But sometimes when I see these primarily men talking yes. about simulation theory, I go, huh? Yes, you're very smart but also you think you've definitely got this all figured out. And, but one thing that I find missing is like their, their intuitive emotional function is almost not switched on. You know what I mean? And so when I listen to Elon Musk speak, I go, ah, yes, you're very smart, but where's your feeling? You know, Mm -hmm. it's not there, you know, and you can't, you're missing a whole part of what you could see, you know, if, if you were in touch with that and it makes me want to just inject all of these men with like, like lots of like mystical feelings because they might even come to, you know, I would, they would come to some completely maybe more well-rounded conclusion, but that's where I start. Like whenever I hear a simulation theory, because even Zaz talks about it and he has a really good Mm -hmm. friend who's like, oh my God, they're just, he's living in, in LA and you'd probably find him a very fascinating character. He's all into the simulation theory stuff. But when I hear them talk about it, they actually get quite like depressed when they're talking about it because totally. it's all very rational and it's all very cold. There's no feeling, there's no There's no mystical nature of it all. I'm so curious to know your your thoughts about
3: that. Oh, I have a number of thoughts about that. Um, I mean, (laughs) so let me be be clear. I I don't know much about like quantum physics or the material structure of the universe. Like Mm -hmm. I couldn't speak to that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's very consistent across um, kind of Western civilization at the very least is this tendency to compare um, the world and reality to the closest thing that we have and usually that's like a technological advancement that is sort of like defining that age right so um they used to say that the world and the universe was like a finely tuned watch that god himself had created it was this very mechanistic Hmm. um portrayal of like the way that the uh planets would orbit the earth in this perfect divine creation but they they were comparing Mm. it to a watch right and so now we have this kind of like the simulation thing that's like well yeah our lives are overrun with simulations so this is the very closest thing that we can come to and it might be the most accurate metaphor for the moment it might be the closest thing that we currently have but I actually use the simulation metaphor to describe the um, world of the ineffable very frequently because when people are like, I don't know what you're talking about, I don't know what dimension of life you're talking about,
0: Mm. I
3: often do say, well, imagine you were living in a simulation Mm
1: -hmm. and the
3: only thing that changed between your life right now and the life that you're living in this simulation is that you knew that it wasn't created by you know god or whatever you knew exactly where it came from you knew that mark zuckerberg sat down and created this perfect simulation for you what would be missing if you had that knowledge what would you stop paying attention to within yourself but hmm. more than that it's like are there not certain things phenomenologically within consciousness itself that could not possibly be captured by a simulation that those are questions that Yes. I couldn't possibly answer, but the one thing that I'm really clear about is that the simulation metaphor it's in everybody's heads. Most mm-hmm. people know about this. They they understand what you're talking about when you when you talk about simulation theory. Like they understand that this is kind of our current model of the world assuming that you're like a rationalist, right? Yeah. This that is the bedrock of kind of this like um, way of viewing reality that I mentioned earlier, where everything has to be put into language. It's this world where everything yes. follows specific rules and it makes you feel really good about to have it all
0: figured out, right?
3: Have it all figured out or to have like a best guess, like a rational yes. best guess. But then the more you look into consciousness, it's like, I'm sorry, we don't know what consciousness is yet. Thank How you. can you have a functioning? We don't know um, shit. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. But the thing is,
0: I'm like, no shade to men. I have a lot of amazing, fantastical men that listen to this podcast. Um, But (laughs) they there is a, 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 and I'm not saying this doesn't exist across the gender spectrum. I'm just saying like at least the men in my life that are like really into God, I have so many uh, guys in my life, like with Zaza's friends that are into like, into simulation theory. And they're like guys that are really into crypto right now. And on like decentralization of finance. And there's really exciting stuff going on in that space, like that I find fascinating. But what I sense as the theme is that what I sense, right? Uh, Because that's the thing I will always get owned by these guys in conversation because it will always come back to I'm like, you just don't know, though. Like you, you don't know, like everything you're saying, yes, it makes perfect sense, but you really don't know. And what's coming across to me is that you're not comfortable with not knowing. One of my favorite mystical texts, I don't know, you'd really like it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like a a Christian mystic and it's, it's one of those amazing ones where it's like written by an anonymous person, which Mm -hmm. I love. Yeah. And it's called the cloud of unknowing and it's very mystical and beautiful. And I've probably listened to it like 14 times because I just, it's the most calming nighttime. Listen, like it's just so peaceful to me, but it's just someone who is, I I presume it was a man who wrote it because he speaks he's and he's delivering it speaking to like a young monk who's really trying to answer all of these like big questions. But the whole theme is getting comfortable with not knowing. You know what I mean? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Not knowing and being okay with saying that you don't know and like really understanding that, you know, like, and we are not comfortable with the cloud of unknowing.
3: Mm -mm. No, and it's so funny that you mentioned that because actually you're helping me kind of make some connections between disparate (laughs) theories and my little grand theory of depression, whatever it is that I'm working on. I imagine
0: you as like that Charlie and Always Sunny meme with like all your little like lines. (laughs) That's
3: you right No, literally that is actually exactly me. Like my life has been- I really
0: understand.
3: taken over by this but one of the things that i came to and it's funny because when we were talking about doing this episode i was at the time working on an episode called the labyrinth and i loved the labyrinth metaphor because to me what it perfectly captured was the process of developing inner authority Mm -hmm. and inner authority is a concept that like i mean it's one of those intuitive terms that can mean a lot of different things but for me specifically it is about um Reclaiming authority within the self by being radically open to the messages of the world. And another way of saying that is to be very, very completely comfortable with not knowing, but to be able to keep moving. And so there's a sense with the labyrinth, the, the metaphor I use in one of my episodes is that, you know, if you need to solve a labyrinth, if you need to solve a mystery... But particularly in a maze form, the number one way to do that is to keep your hand, your right hand on the wall and to just keep walking um, Mm. and never take your hand off the wall. And eventually, if you do that, you will solve the maze because eventually, like mathematically, that will get you out. (laughs) And so for me, keeping your hand along the wall is to keep questioning everything, to keep looking for new material, new information, new theories that might be at odds with your own, but also you can't get paralyzed by that. You can't just be paralyzed by your hand on the wall. You have to keep moving even though you don't know. And that is the uh, only mystery. Oh um, my God.
0: That is so beautiful. Like, And the synchronicities are fucking popping off right now in my brain. I would get up and get it for you, but I don't want to put the listeners through that. I just ordered <laughs> this off Etsy. He's this guy in Montreal and uh that's why when you started posting about the labyrinth on your stories I was like whoa um I yes. just ordered like a customized um wooden labyrinth like it's a it's an exact replica of the Chartres labyrinth in like France oh, wow. and have you no, heard about the Chartres labyrinth like I have not I don't think uh, Oh my gosh so then I just have a lot of stuff to send you after this episode cuz I think okay. you'll find it will really help you with your Charlie stuff um but like so the Chartres uh labyrinth there's a cathedral in um Charteris France and all my French listeners are what Zaz is from Quebec. And whenever I say Charteris, he's like, it's Chatlas. He's like, he hates (laughs) how I pronounce it. So apologies to my Frenchies out there, but he um, there, there's this medieval um, cathedral and it's just gorgeous. um, And there was a, a pattern on the floor that no one really understood what it was. It was covered with chairs. And then just as recently as like, I think it was only like 30 or 40 years ago, this woman named Lauren Artris, which you would really like her book, by the way, she does it a mm-hmm. whole book on the how she believes that the metaphor of the labyrinth is like the major key of like mental health healing. So like, I think uh, you guys are very like 20s. And- yes. She went to this cathedral and I don't know if it was her, so don't quote me on this listeners, but long story short, they didn't even fucking know that there was this labyrinth pattern on the ground. And so clearly these medieval people who built this cathedral knew about this, but everyone's just so busy looking at the stained glass windows and all the beautiful things that they didn't see the labyrinth. So they uncovered it, they took all the chairs away and people started going, making pilgrimages to um, Charteris now, and they're walking the labyrinth and people are reporting that they're having miracles happen in their lives by walking wow. this labyrinth. It is, Sarah, it's so fucking cool. <laughs> and it's so cool that like, I'm I'm planning on doing an, this coming spring, like I'm gonna go and I'm doing like a whole, cause I wanna go see like the black Madonna stuff. I'm really mm-hmm. into all of this stuff in France. And there's just like Mary Magdalene stuff, like really yeah. cool Cathar uh-huh. stuff. Like I'm just like so obsessed with all of that and I'm going to drag Zaz with me, but it's, she believes in this, the the magic of the labyrinth of, and it is very much cloud of unknowing what you're talking about of Mm -hmm. just walking and just wherever it leads you, just trust, you know, trust yourself and, and know that eventually you will make your way to the center. Oh, I just think it's such a beautiful metaphor. And when you posted about the labyrinth, I was just, I almost think we've kind of like circled on a really profound point that like people just really are not comfortable with not having an answer, not having a label Mm -hmm. and it manifests differently. You have Zaz and his friends who are like very intellectual and they don't identify with any mental health disorder labels. They're they're investigating simulation theory, but then you have the people that are the most vulnerable who are clinging to these personality disorder labels or any other kind of label because they have to know, they have to know, they have to have an answer, but it's like, There isn't one, and maybe
3: that's the freedom. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I I am completely in agreement with you, and I think that (laughs) that's I I I have to go back to my own kind of work and kind of see how this thread of not knowing or fear of the unknown ties into it, because I think that that is like a, a major theme throughout all of this. And you know, the one other thing that I will say that's sad is that if you do have some adaptational issue I don't even like calling them mental health disorders like just just, it's
0: okay you're in a very good home company here because yeah (laughs)
3: agreed um but if you you know if you are struggling let's just um having that label I mean it's it's awful because it's a double-edged sword you kind of need it to deal with outside society
0: yeah have you you heard the phrase like what I really like when I think about mental health disorder labels it's um the map is not the territory, you know, mm-hmm. if there's like, or you, it's like training wheels, like you need them, but, but eventually you're going to be an adult riding a bike with fucking training wheels, right? Like, don't you eventually want to take off the training wheels and just ride the bike? That's how I see it. Right. You don't want to be, in my opinion, a grown ass adult being like, I have BPD, right? Like that's why <laughs> I am the way I am. Like we, none bike. of us want that. Right. But sometimes it can, as you've described, It can give us language, which can then be the training wheels that we need to eventually come to this inner journey, but you eventually have to take off the training wheels.
3: 100%. And like, I just so appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. I just want to say, because like the number of resources that would actually allow somebody to do that, to even understand that there are training wheels to begin with are so limited. I know. I just feel so bad for everybody and th- that wasn't a very like great articulation of it but it but it, it's true
0: it's the truth frustrates it's
3: my language yeah like like i can't tell you how awful it is that we have this kind of system that that says that there is an answer when there isn't one and then people flock yes. to the answer that doesn't exist yes and then when they realize that that answer doesn't exist, they turn around. They're like, Where am I? Like, Yes, what just happened.
0: This is supposed to work, right? All the studies say that this works. So, why mm-hmm. hasn't it worked for me? So, therefore, I'm the broken one, right? Yeah. Or I just have to try another one. Is, yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah. then you're, but that suits the capitalist narrative. I'm not trying really. to make this, but it's, it is. It suits right now. We live in a society that is driven by like, Eyeballs and profits, right? It's mm-hmm. what we're talking about doesn't suit the current like narrative. No one wants to talk about nothing. No, it doesn't mean anything. Da da da. But the thing is, you're right. Like that's the key. But hasn't mm-hmm. that always been? Like you said, you were into Wicca. Like I'm big into. Like I love researching all different rel- mystical religions. I'm just so into it. But the thing is, is that it always comes back to that. Is like you don't know. And you really do have to trust, know thyself, right? Like go within the answers are there, but even then you're not, it's never going to be clear ever.
3: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just to, just to add on to that point, one last thing, cause we did talk a little bit about the personality stuff and mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of like wrap that up into what we're saying here because it feels so hilarious. That what Jung was trying to do with his personality typology, which was actually to create a compass that Mm. could lead the subject back to the world and the world back to the subject, right? It was a way of helping somebody adapt, but also knowing in what direction they had been headed and maybe what direction they needed to go. So this personality typing system, it's not a typing system at all. It's just a way of understanding the dynamics of opposites so that you can maybe like do something with it and also understand the way that mystery appears to you is going to be very different than the way mystery appears to somebody else but maybe you need to experience their mystery blah 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 the fact that that was all taken and turned into like a little identity test that's used by corporate america (laughs) oof is just, you know, that that's the perfect example of what we're talking about. And of course that happened. It's like the but- definition
0: of bastardizing something, you know what I yes. mean? Like you're right, Jung is like twirling around in his grave with pain, just going, why God, why? Because I couldn't agree. My last tech job, I literally had to take a personality test. I shit you not. And then I found out that at my company, like I, since I left, they all literally took a personality test and as like a, a company game night, all talked about the results of their personality tests and how this would help them better produce. And And I'm oh, that's like funny. the matrix. It, I'm like, what <laughs> in the fuck? Oh my God. I didn't do well at, in corporate America because I just did not play well with these like forced. I don't do well with like forced vulnerability and forced uh like Let's pretend like we actually care about anything other than your productivity level. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, like, totally, one hundred percent.
3: Let's just call a spade a spade. Like, That's like okay. it's just, I can pretend to enjoy my job.
0: <laughs> literally, we're all we're all playing here. You know, like let's just let's just be real about it. Oh, right. Sarah, I feel like I could talk to you for like three hours, and I have to pee. Admittedly, I listeners. also have to pee. <laughs> I'm not editing that out because guess what? That's the reality of life, y'all. Sometimes we just have to pee. It's been a long talk, but. I want to ask you because I ask everyone, number one, I have to have you back on again. I would love nothing more to have you back on. And like, I'd, I think a part two episode in the future could be like, we could take some listener questions because I get so oh, I many voicemails. And I think that that would be such a fun episode. So you can, um, we're, we're making that pack to the listeners now. That's going to happen in the future. I always tie up with, you spoke about it a bit, but I, I always finish with asking my guests What are they working on? Like, what can we look forward to seeing uh, next from you? And then how can my listeners connect with you and dive into your work? And after this too, when I send you all of these book links because I'm going to send you Uh all these recommendations that we talked about. um, And then you can ping back all of your links for me so that I can slot those into the episode description. So don't worry, listeners, you can go into the episode description. You'll be able to find everything that Sarah talks about now. So feel free to plug yourself, Sarah. Oh, thank you. No, yeah. yeah, um,
3: I mean, if you just want to engage with me or kind of follow roughly the research that I've been doing. I tend to post about that as well as just memes related to Carl Jung and, and other. others. So good. On a- so good. The one I <laughs> just shared Carl on my story
0: was literally like trauma is stored in the balls. <laughs> 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 and they're all, what I love is like, you have the perfect mixture of like irreverence, like total meme culture but with also so many profound memes, like you're going to see trauma stored in the balls and then you're going to see the most like in-depth thing you've ever heard. I just love your page. Anyway, continue. I no, Thank
3: you so much. Well, yeah. So Carl Jung memes, super easy to remember. Um, and then uh, linked on that page or you can just go to it directly is my Patreon. It's uh, uh, lowest tier right now is five dollars a month. I am working so hard to put out more free content because I want to get this stuff out to people, but for the moment, I just, like, I'm putting literally probably 50 hours of week into these episodes because it is all research. It is scripted, um, deep stuff, like an hour to two hour kind of episode situation. So those are kind of like my main socials at the moment. Uh, but if you don't have the money for patreon that's a-okay we'll try and get some stuff out that's consumable i think also the first two episodes are free on my patreon
0: they we are because I listened. Out. I listened to them myself, and oh, awesome. I I am going to become a patron of yours now because I'm really curious to dive further into your work. And thank you to David. Another shout out to like sharing that with me because I followed your page and had no idea that you were doing this. On so I feel like if there's anything you can get better about is like shouting out your work because like oh my you, God, that's so funny. You deserve yeah. it all the credit that you get, and also you know. That's a point. It's like creators work so hard on this stuff. It does so much work goes into these things. And you deserve to get compensated for for what you're doing. And you're doing a service. And that's the beauty of it. Like these things will live on. You know what I mean? Yeah. These audio things are gonna live on. It's really beautiful what you're doing. And um just thank you for this conversation, Sarah. It was it was so fun chatting with you.
3: Yeah. No, thank you so much for the invitation and yeah. Um, I'd love to discuss more MBTI stuff at some point like I have my two episodes coming out on that Um, the part two is coming out in the next week so you know we'll 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 DM a little bit we will yeah and also my god
0: what better way listeners if you want to do deep dives into the MBTI go sign up for Sarah's Patreon right if you liked what we talked about now go there sign up and like I said it's If you like my episodes, you're going to just love her content. So I think it's just beautiful us doing this together because right now, so many of my listeners are disillusioned with either the mental health space right now, or they're on long wait lists for therapy or, and they're just hungry for resources. So go seek out Sarah's content. She's really doing something special and, and support her. And it will, you will get a, a lot of value from what she's doing. Well, thank you so
3: much. I really appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. All right,
0: everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sarah as much as I did. If you would like to dive deeper into her work or access any of the references we made in this episode, you can find all of that in the episode description. At the very least, I highly recommend that you follow Sarah on Instagram at Carl Young Memes. You will not be disappointed. That way you can dip your toe into her work and if you start to see things that you like, which I have no doubt that you will, you could consider supporting her Patreon and accessing some of her incredible audio content. She puts a ton of work into it and it is deeply transformative. And now we're going to be moving into the premium part of the podcast. And if you are a free listener, you're going to get a preview. And I have a very exciting preview for you today, indeed. So make sure you stick around. But first, we are going to take a teeny little two minute break for a word from my sponsor. And I am so grateful to the sponsors of my podcast. I have some incredible other ones that are coming up that are deeply aligned with my integrity and my values. And sponsorships in addition to the support from my patrons help me continue making this work for individuals who want to tune in for free i try my best to bake my ads in in a way that make it still peaceful listening and also hopefully something that you could get value from so let's hear about pure spectrum cbd Part of the way I'm able to continue podcasting full time is by partnering with companies that I believe in. Listeners of my podcast and myself are all on a journey to achieve mental, physical, and emotional balance. And that's why I've teamed up with Pure Spectrum CBD, a trusted leader in the industry committed to delivering the highest quality products. Pure Spectrum believes in the transformative power of CBD and phytocannabinoids supporting our endocannabinoid system to promote balance and wellness, not just for us, but even our pets. Pure Spectrum was the very first company to open a branded CBD retail store in the United States and have even established strong partnerships with major sports organizations like the CrossFit and Olympic Games. Meticulously sourcing their hemp from trusted organic farms, Pure Spectrum rigorously tests for purity, potency, and safety. Plus, they provide third party lab tests for every batch with both USDA organic and NSF certifications, ensuring their products meet the highest possible standards. Whether you're seeking balance, relief, better sleep, or overall well being, Pure Spectrum has a tailored solution for you. I have personally been using and loving their high concentration CBD cream and the Tranquil CBD and CBN tincture. Both of these have been really helping me out with the pain and insomnia I experience during my menstrual cycle. As a back from the borderline listener, you get 15% off your first order by visiting pure cbd.com slash bftb. You can also find a direct link by visiting backfromtheborderline.com clicking into my link tree and scrolling to the bottom and remember healing is a highly individual journey so what works for me might not work for you cbd may interact with certain medications or medical conditions so if you have any concerns it's best to seek professional guidance from your doctor I only partner with companies I trust, and Pure Spectrum is the real deal, and the best part, one of our very own BFTB listeners is the one who brought this partnership into my life, which makes it that much more meaningful. So, if you'd like to check out their products and get 15% off your first order today, visit purespectrumcbd.com slash bftb. Now let's get back into the episode. okay so at this point you're probably like molly what is this exciting announcement that you're gonna make it actually is really exciting i wasn't just leading you on og listeners of the podcast as well as my premium submarines many of them are also og listeners know that in the past only two times and one other short little time My husband Zaz has made an appearance on the podcast and every time Zaz comes on the podcast I receive a flood of voicemails and emails saying how helpful it was to hear from him, how helpful it was to hear us in conversation and asking, when is Zaz going to be back? (laughs) And so the announcement is Zaz is back and Zaz is back in a more permanent way. We are going to be starting a Patreon-exclusive podcast called Unbuttoned with Molly and Zaz. And this is going to just feature completely laid-back, chill conversations with me and Zaz, existential talks. We're going to bring on our own friends and people in our life and just talk about life, relationships, and all that fun stuff and the reason i want to do this is not only to provide more value for my premium submarines on patreon and hopefully to encourage more of you to subscribe because you know a girl's got to make a living but also Because I know that the topics that we discuss here are sometimes really, really heavy, and you also need to carve out certain times of your week or day where you're ready to really go there, if you know what I mean. And so I'm hoping that these talks with Zaz will allow people to experience my world and healing in a more laid-back conversational way something that you don't feel like you have to get your notepad and really be ready to go to the darkest parts of your psyche to listen to so what you're going to hear is the first part of my very first episode with Zaz of Unbuttoned with Molly and Zaz and the full episode is going to be available for my premium submarines on Patreon. So if that's something you're interested in, after you hear this free preview, you can go to backfromtheborderline.com or better yet, just click the episode link and check out the show notes or the episode description that you see on whatever podcast player that you're using and the link will be there for you. Much easier to just click in There are two tiers of Patreon, and one of them is a $9 premium submarine tier, and then the other one is a $13 a month ultra premium submarine tier. And ultra premium submarines also receive my private voice notes, which I release at least once a week, where it's just more casual chit chat with me, and we just go even deeper. So... If you're a premium submarine, just giving you a big shout out because your support has allowed my dream to come true where I get to do this full time. So thank you so much. And if you have considered becoming a premium submarine in the past, it would be great to welcome you into our little community. Patreon is releasing some really exciting new features, including a chat feature, which I plan on enabling for my premium submarines in the next few months once. The bugs are worked out i spent enough time working in tech to know that you never should probably enjoy a new feature right when it's released because i do not want to be the testing guinea pig for the patreon chat function (laughs) but that's something that we can look forward to in the future Just as a heads up, I'm going to fast forward a little bit into the episode of Unbuttoned with Molly and Zaz for you because the beginning is just me talking about why we're doing this and I already described that to you, so I'm not going to bore you with that part. So it's just going to fade in to a certain part of the conversation where we're really actually starting to talk so you can get a flavor of what these episodes are actually like without having to listen to my intro. So without further ado, let's dive into a free preview of episode one of Unbuttoned with Molly and Saz.
1: Well, I'm no, no, no guru, as they would say, but um, I think it's fun to just be able to have like be a fly on the wall of some interesting conversations, yeah. to, Like surround yourself around, you know, the people that, that inspire you. Hopefully we can offer some inspiration and, you know, create a conversation
0: part of the reason why I wanted to start this is because Zaz and I are already having a million conversations in our house that I'm always thinking like this would have been an amazing podcast episode, you know? And I think you are too. Yeah. We're, and not that we want to become like a content creator household where we're filming every moment of our lives, but it's just sometimes we'll be talking about stuff and I'm like, I really wonder if other people are struggling with these mm-hmm. same things that we are. And so I always think it's nice to have like a couple dialogue. I don't think that you hear enough real couples talking about genuine stuff. It's mostly just like very shiny veneer of everybody's best moments. And so it's my hope that we can can come and provide the good, the bad, the ugly, the existential, all of it, and just have some casual conversations. So Zaz, why don't you tell the listeners actually a little bit about yourself? Because you are kind of a man of mystery to them.
1: Well, where to start? I don't even know, to be honest.
0: Just talk about where you where did you come from? What is like? What makes you you? This is really fun. I'm watching him squirm. <laughs>
1: Ooh, you know. I, well, let me preface it with this. Lately, in my life, I've been in this kind of mindset of not saying much, like trying to talk less, because I found myself you know in the past often talking too much and so that's actually a challenging question for me
0: what's a time that you talked too much
1: half my life
0: and what did why why did you find out that wasn't the right thing to do
1: hearing your hearing myself talk you know, in like other things, I've always. By the way, if you say. all
0: hear like clinking sounds, you're getting some ASMR because me and Zaz are drinking a mocktail. You can hear the little ice cubes.
1: But I mean, I'm sure other people can relate to this. It's just kind of like this introverted, extroverted reality where on one part, you're, you know, you, there's this front facing facade. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of it is also this very introverted side that doesn't really want to kind of reveal too much. Mm. So.
0: And you have me on the the other opposite extreme.
1: (laughs) Being posed that question is actually difficult. Um,
0: Something I respect a lot about you is that you play chess. And for the listeners, like Zaz, actually really thinks about if I say this or I make this decision, what's the ripple effect from that going to be? I'd say sometimes you think about that too much, like to an extreme, but it benefits you. So you're kind of going like. What do i want to share about myself what do i not want to share that's a good thing
1: yeah it's kind of you know what what can be of of benefit i think ultimately you know i'm just a human being that has you know experienced you know ups and downs and you know (laughs) it is what it is like i don't know
0: I'm making Saz sit in the uncomfortable silence right now. Right now, he's sitting there, kind of like smiling, tippy tapping his legs. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to talk about yourself, genuinely. And I know that. Why do you think that's so hard for you?
1: Uh, you know, just I'm always trying to gauge if I have if it, you know if one is um one meaning myself or anybody is um where your ego exists within the context of certain conversations Well
0: we're going there folks
1: you know and so that's that's you know so i'm always, what do you I would, mean by that well lately i've really been obsessed with it, just the, the idea of ego death and I'm, i feel mm-hmm. like i'm ultimately very far from ego death which is why you know i often attach myself to my own identity of being an artist or a musician or like all these other things mm-hmm. and then you know when they go well or not well you know, I get very emotionally affected by those things. Yep. And you know, it's all based off of this identity, this picture of myself that I've that I've built. And I've been kind of backtracking on that as of recently, or wanting to really backtrack off that, and you know, kind of explore what does it mean to actually have zero ego. Uh,
0: what do you think and be that okay means? with being
1: kind of nobody at the same time? What it, do it, you
0: think it would actually be like to live with no ego? would you just be kind of like a happy little amoeba like shining in the light? I think it'd be
1: fucking bliss. No, yeah,
0: same. But like, what does it actually look like in practice? Because like, no ego technically means, does no ego always mean no sense of self? Like, because if because your ego is your sense of self. So if you have no sense of self and you are just like, you have no, you're just like, I'm just imagining like a literal happy clam, just like something just blissed out. like doesn't really have any desires or wants or attachments. Yeah. It's just going...
1: Well it's funny because I was about to say like where does motivation come from? Like mm-hmm. are are we motivated by our ego, our idea of self and what we think we can be?
0: Ego serves a function because it it literally does drive you. Right. So it's up to you to to mix the the spirit and the matter as they say. Yeah. You know, there has to be a you have to you have to be a little bit present in 3-dimensional reality to participate In this, whatever Uh, the fuck this is. (laughs) So
1: frankly, so frankly, a little bit of ego is necessary for for progress.
0: That's why, like people that are die hard on ego death, like I think you want to experience ego death, right? Because then, if you experience that state, then it changes. Your perspective on everything. You don't want to be stuck in ego death mode because then I think you'd be the blissed out clown.
1: Well, that's just it. It's a moment. It's 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 something to. To feel for a moment,
0: it's like a consciousness shift. It's like an ayahuasca trip or yeah. something, and
1: being okay with it in that moment, not mm-hmm. being completely freaked out. Yeah, you know where you're just because I've had those freak out moments where you know oh, things dematerialize and suddenly those are you're,
0: that's derealization. Yeah, where it's like you're like out of your body and you're like, is it like those times where you're like looking in the mirror and you're like kind of get tripped out about who you are, or what's going on? Yeah. yeah,
1: I mean, I've looked at them in the mirror at times, sometimes, <laughs> mm-hmm. and looked at myself and really been mortified and think, oh my god. Like there's this human being looking back at me.
0: Yeah. It's really scary. Yeah. They always say that if you're on psychedelics, like you should not look in the mirror. So of course the first time that I was like tripping balls on mushrooms, remember that? Oh, oh, yeah. (laughs) We could tell. So here's the story. I got... And also like tripping balls is an exaggeration. I've still never even taken like a hero's dose of psilocybin, but I have a low tolerance anyways. I took some of this like mushroom powder that I got from this uh, like Native American shaman who has like a license to sell it through like some kind of religious um, exemption. So anyways... Um, he's lovely and he's a certified counselor I'm doing all this because my listeners are gonna be like Molly are you good but literally this guy's an amazing person he'll call you and like tell you how he thinks it should be best done he's the one that told me how to make it with like a tea and lemon to like not get nausea anyways I did shrooms and I told Zaz I told you that I was gonna be doing it so that he could just kind of observe me and why don't you just um, explain to the listeners what you witnessed
1: well I just remember coming downstairs (laughs) And just seeing you with your hair completely, like you've got, you got Goblin electrocuted girl. or something. Goblin girl. Yeah, but like Goblin girl, kind of like back like to per, the future. Like,
0: like Professor Trelawney from Harry Potter.
1: Yeah, exactly. Back to the fu- or like back to the future Goblin girl.
0: Great. <laughs> great. So, anyways, I looked great.
1: You looked amazing. And so, <laughs> but I didn't know what the hell was going on, to be honest. I didn't know You'd... you actually took it at that oh, point. Oh, because
0: like I, I did tell you.
1: I think you said you were going to do it, but I didn't know that, that you were act- going to actually yeah. do it then. Because
0: I woke up at like five in the morning yeah. to do it. Like I yeah, wanted yeah. to be really alone. I didn't want to, but, but it, the effects last for like four hours. So. And
1: I didn't know how it progressed. So I come <laughs> down just seeing you in the state where, you know, you're in front of your tarot cards. <laughs> and you just kind of looked back at me. It almost looked like your head actually spun around. I'm like, like, I'm 180 like 180 degrees. grunge girl. It did. 180 degree spin. Shut <laughs> up, is
0: Happy Halloween, everyone. We're recording this in October. It's as it's in the spirit. No, but
1: you were in a state of, of being. So I let you, I let you con-
3: continue. <laughs> you were in a state of being. <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah, like, anyways, I know how we got on this subject is because that day that I took those shrooms, I went in the bathroom and I remember, of course, they say don't do it. So I'm like the bitch that's like, okay, why do they say don't do it? I'm going to do it. And I looked in the mirror and I was like, whoa. I don't know why they say don't do it because I didn't experience anything bad. It just definitely was one of those like, holy fuck, what the fuck? Who am I? What's looking at me? I didn't feel like I was in there. I was like, whoa, it's very destabilizing. I can see why people have like psychotic breaks if they're not in a good mental place to do psychedelics. I would never, ever wish that on my worst enemy. If they're like in a bad place mentally, I would never want to
1: do psychedelics oh man i mean i mean i'm sure everyone has some psychedelic story but i guess
0: people are using it like ketamine for depression and stuff so maybe i guess it's just so essential to have someone that can be there to like walk you through the experience if you're in a bad unstable place Mm -hmm. but sorry what were you about to say
1: no 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 i was just just reiterating how how um, frightening it can actually be um not you know having someone who can ground you in reality in, in a and you're
0: moment. you're very good at that.
1: Yeah, but, Zaz but it, is
0: like the perfect trip sitter.
1: <laughs> but you know, I remember times where I would have to, I would have to uh, ground myself in reality. Mm. It's kind of interesting when you're fucking like really in some state of mind, and then yeah. you can kind of you have, you can kind of snap out of it for a moment just to yeah. rationalize, like, okay, I'm actually sitting in this room right now mm-hmm. because you're out of survival, really.
0: <laughs> Didn't you? There's a story you told me about like, didn't you take like, when you were living in LA, you took edibles and you, what was that story? And you took like way too many.
1: So we went out, this girl and I, a good friend of mine in Los Angeles, (laughs) we had gone out for a camping trip and we basically decided to do edibles. It was my first time doing, doing like really doing some edibles. And I obviously knew nothing about the dosage. So we basically split. Like an entire uh, bar of THC, <laughs> but so and we made s'mores out of them. Oh fuck! So you know you're supposed to take a little cube off of yeah. it. So we took if like that, a slab. Sometimes people take a half. Yeah, we took a slab of each, oh, and then fuck. we made s'mores, thinking, "Oh yeah, campy, right?"
0: Oh my god, who is this green ass girl that you you guys were both? Sarah. Noobs?
1: Yeah, no, she was a great musician. We were like when I was out. But
0: neither of you had experience with no, no before.
1: I we obviously not because I I was I was kind of following her lead.
0: I have it's funny because the same thing happened with me and Jordan when we went to Amsterdam the first time. Like everyone told us, just if you get a brownie, just have like a quarter of it and then wait. Me and Jordan like got there, ate a whole brownie each. Then like 10 minutes later, like we don't feel stoned because we're thinking it's like you smoke a joint and you get stoned immediately. We had another one, so we each had two. Oh, shit. I I don't know how I survived that night. I literally It was one of those times where you were laying in bed. Like we were staying at a hostel with two other like stinky German twins. Like they were dudes, like these big (laughs) German dudes. All I remember is that I was in our little bunk bed just staring up at the ceiling and doing that thing of like You know when you're so stoned, and you're just going like, "I'll give anything to feel sobriety again." Like I'm never gonna take feeling sober for granted Mm -hmm. again. Is that how you guys felt?
1: Well, she at a certain point. I mean, let's put it this way: you know, you're you're basically progressing. Yay, we're out. It's all good. And then it hits you, Mm -hmm. and that's when it really starts to get dark. Because then, when you see people (laughs) veer off into different psychosis-like states, you know what I mean. And so I'm seeing her veer off into into one like extreme, like oh my god, that's you know the fucking the the fucking sky. Like where's the sky? We're like sitting in a tent. She's like, where's the sky? Oh no, we're in a tent. Like open the zipper.
3: Oh fuck, you know
1: and. And, and Nick, people are pulling into the campsite and you could see the lights reflecting off oh. the inside of the tent. And we thought aliens were coming and that we were being abducted. <laughs> and I had to keep opening the zipper to show her that there was still sky. And, and basically, I had to take like a caretaker role while I'm still tripping. You, story role. of your life, right? Yeah. And so I basically was just kind of like, it's going to be okay. Everything's good. Trying to like rational While myself, I'm trying to do that for myself at the same time. Oh, and my God. And then we obviously, you know, like like after like four a.m. after you know, taking it, it wore from, off, it wore off, and, and it's that relief.
0: Yes, where you're like, you know, finally, like my consciousness yeah. is normal again.
1: And that's a really amazing period, though. I would say as 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 mortifying as it was, the calm down when you suddenly feel like that stabilization. It's
0: very calming. It's.
1: Uh, and then you kind of look fondly, fondly back at the experience actually in hindsight. Yeah. That's the thing. You
0: know what's interesting about like those super stoned like where you have, because I've had a few of those. That's what Those are times where I took like long breaks away from marijuana. And it was mostly when I was in my early 20s and like late teens, but like where I felt like I had like a break, like a mental break situation with overdoing it on weed. And it makes you realize like how a paranoid state of mind could lead you to absolute mental breakdown, Mm -hmm. you know, because we're all paranoid. Like both me and you, I'd say are pretty neurotic people. Like (laughs) to put it mildly, we're both pretty neurotic in our own ways, but you see how neuroses can like get turned up all the way to the point where you are like fucking scared that aliens are breaking in and shit like that. And like, where's the sky? Like, shit really does get that serious with yeah. people's like mental state. And just recently, everything that we've been through personally in our own lives has like, we're very much, I think I can speak for you, but you can speak for yourself. It's just, we're really like re-assessing reality.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, how to even, you know, kind of begin, begin with that.
0: As you all know, I am deeply fascinated with anything depth psychology, esotericism, mysticism, myth. And up until very recently, I had never one little corner of the internet I had never really much dipped my toe into was like the UFO stuff, and or UAP as it's being mentioned now. I always kind of got turned off, to be honest, like from UFO world because it all just seemed very like star Trekky. You know what I mean? Like there was no myth in it. It all seemed like, are there aliens? Are they good or bad? Are they a threat? It didn't seem very interesting and like sexy <laughs> mm-hmm. and and spiritual. There was like no juicy element. But anyways, I'm trying to hopefully tee this up for the listeners in the best way I can. I don't know. Uh, I was listening to the Duncan Trussell Family Hour podcast. And for those of you that don't know, Duncan Trussell is the guy that created the Adventure Time uh, cartoon that was, I think, on like Adult Swim for a really long time. Needless to say, he's like an incredibly creative, interesting character. And he is also deeply involved in esotericism and spirituality. And Duncan Trussell Family Hour, if you haven't listened to it before, He's like one of the most creative podcasters I know, and he interviews very interesting people. And one day when I was listening to his podcast, he had a guy named Ryan Bledsoe on his podcast. And it was a really, it immediately, the story captivated me because Ryan was talking about how, um, what he and his family had been through. And essentially to put it very, very short, as short as I possibly can, they have experienced um what now I think like the world of ufology is calls like the phenomena, right? Like they've they have experienced high strangeness uh around them as a family and it all started with their dad Chris Bledsoe and Chris um just a good old North Carolina boy like growing up raising his family in North Carolina he was going through some really hard times with his health and his business and I think it was like 2005, 2006. And he and his son had an experience where they saw orbs. Um, if you want to call them UFOs, Chris does not call them this. Um, they saw orbs and they saw beings that that um, look a lot like the depictions of what our people are just saying are like grays, you know, these types of just beings and Chris has experienced some incredible things to the point where all the different three-letter agencies, the CIA, the, you know, like all of the biggest agencies are around this guy trying to figure out why there are so many of these experiences around him. And so he recently wrote a book called UFO of God, and it's about his entire story. And Ryan mentioned it on the podcast, and I thought, I have to read this fucking book, like, I just wanted to read it. I've never in my life read any, any like UFO experience stuff. And so I got the book, could not put it down, was just blown away by mainly the scapegoating and the abuse that this family endured over their life. They were not believed, they were shunned by their entire religious community because they were Christian at the time. And and I think Chris still considers himself to be a spirit deeply spiritual person. You'll know that if you read the book and I'm trying to make this, this is like a really long story, but I feel like it has to be said, as is like shaking his head. Yes. Cause it is all a very important context. And I was moved by the book moved what this family went through and also so excited that they're now starting to get validation. The history channel just did a documentary on them and, um, Chris's book is getting, you know, top seller on Amazon. And Jim Simavan wrote the foreword to his book. And this man is like a highly decorated um, individual within the US government. So it's the real deal. People are co-signing Chris's story and saying, yes, this family are experiencing some fascinating things. And you'll have to read the book to understand what I mean, or just look up Chris Bledsoe and you'll be able to see him interviewed about his experiences. And he's much better to tell the story than I am here now. Long story short, I just wanted to reach out to Ryan and tell him how much the book impacted me and also see if on the off chance that he and his dad wanted to come on the podcast to talk about scapegoating. What a unique scapegoating exploration, right? You're being scapegoated for having seen you know, high strangeness, like UFO phenomenon, whatever you want to call it. Ryan wrote back to me and he said that he would love to have a call. So long story short, Ryan and I had a call. We ended up on the phone for a couple of hours just talking about all of our different overlapping, like esoteric interests that we like talking about. And after all that was said and done, talking with Ryan, ended up talking to him and his dad, they invited me and Zaz to come to North Carolina to view the phenomenon they said come come skywatch with us almost everyone that comes always ends up seeing something and so me and Zaz pulled the trigger and we just went and we just got back last week and Zaz since I've been literally talking for 10,000 years at this point why don't you explain what we experienced at that house
1: yeah well I mean it was a pretty you know there was a lot of anticipation coming into it and also a bit of you know fear of not wanting to like what if we don't get to experience the phenomena i personally had a lot of that kind okay. of fear of of wanting to and i'll give you some context you know we were kind of coming there and myself particularly in my own mind was coming there with the real strong desire to see something um that confirmed or validated a bigger narrative, um, bigger than myself, bigger than all our objectives, all of it. I just wanted something that really just like threw the book out the window and gave me a whole different perspective or validated this kind of innate thing I feel, but that really ultimately wanted to just be the hook and sinker. And so kind of leading into the evening, you know, when we finally met the family and which was just so magical. And then you know being taken out to actually go sit under the stars for for the entirety of the night you know what we saw um was 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 incredible i mean uh light orbs of you know one in particular that literally you know went like like right above a tree essentially yeah, yeah. um and then and then and then a variety of other uh you know <laughs> smaller and larger ones. Um,
0: it was pretty amazing.
1: It just left your mouth open. Like our it, mouths are gaping like, the entire time.
0: We, when we got to their house, we sat in their their house for a while, chatting for a couple of hours because we were waiting for it to get dark. Then we went out to dinner with them. And then when we got back from dinner, it was dark. And so we went with Chris and Ryan and it's just like their North Carolina property. It's beautiful. There's a pond and they have three or four chairs there that are kind of reclinable, you know, um, lawn chairs. And we all just sat there and like I agree with you, Zaz. I was feeling the feelings of like, what if I don't see something? Like, does that mean that it's a lie or does that mean something bad spiritually about myself you know what i mean like a lot i lot of critical like,
1: self-judgment so
0: much like and just the fact that i was even thinking that goes to show the state of my like inner critic i suppose because i was like wow what if i'm the first person that this phenomena doesn't appear for you know what does that say about me I was just going through all the shit. so of course i had a million things and chris chris is an interesting UFO experiencer. And I'm just... I'm only saying the words UFO. I hate it. I think the words alien and UFO are very, like, weird and othering. Like, I don't like it. It's just... So I'm going to say the phenomena instead of UFO. Because it doesn't look like a UFO anything that we saw. I It no. doesn't have the shape of that. So the phenomena. Chris has a spiritual, very spiritual view. He... But not a denominational one. He's very much like he... He believes it is something, it is like pure love, pure light is how he describes it, right? It's like, but it's God to him. It is something very spiritual that has good intentions. And he, if you watch the History Channel documentary, it's called Beyond Skinwalker Ranch. And you can just look it up, Beyond Skinwalker Ranch, Chris Bledsoe. <clears throat> and he has a connection to this phenomena in some way. And the phenomena appear as orbs typically they're like if you can imagine just a ball of light and some of them are different some of them are red some of them are like almost like that bluish white bright white white light kind of some of them are golden and some of them apparently get really close up to like particularly him and his family sometimes when there are visitors they're more faint sometimes they come straight up in the trees like and then a couple of their family members have seen them manifest as small beings. Um, but a lot of people that go out to their property experience this. And the orb that Zaz was talking about is Zaz and Ryan were having a conversation and Chris, I was kind of starting to get like, oh, are we going to see anything? Are we going to see anything? And Chris and I had like our heads together kind of, because I was in the seat next to Chris. Then it was... Chris, me, Zaz, Ryan, all in a line. And I leaned my head over to Chris and we were chatting and he just said, you know, you just have to believe and like think about think about the light and they will come, right? Like he's he really is connected in this way and speaks in this way. And as soon as he said that, this ball of golden light. I can't even believe I'm saying this. <laughs> Uh, and Zaz saw it yeah it was surreal it it came I would say like 8 feet above if you want to hear the rest of mine and Zaz's experience you'll need to join the premium submarines on Patreon for more information on how to join you can visit the link in the episode description you can also visit patreon.com and search back from the borderline I'll also be dropping this as a standalone episode in the podcast feed as this free preview so that anyone interested in this story and wants to know more can unlock the full version by subscribing. This experience has changed my entire life and my view on reality. And to be honest, I'm still integrating it. And we dive really deeply into that through the rest of the conversation. This conversation goes on for about an hour and Zaz and I will continue talking about it and the changes we're experiencing in our life soon. I'm also going to be appearing as a guest on Ryan Bledsoe's podcast, Bledsoe Said So, here in the next couple of weeks. Not sure when that episode's going to be released, and I'm going to be having Ryan and Chris on an episode of Back From the Borderline as well to talk about their experience and since they've given tons of other interviews at this point about what happened to them and you know what's gone on and the intricacies of the phenomenon i want to dive into the psychological aspect of what it was like to experience something like this and be shamed and shunned by most of the members of your community to the point of their physical health breaking down in some instances, and being threatened and harassed. It's just mind-boggling what this family has been through. And I thought it would be really interesting to dive into the concept of toxic shame and scapegoating abuse as it relates to this emerging theme of there being something greater than us out there. Paradigms are changing, viewpoints are shifting, we're witnessing a collective shift in consciousness. Before, you know, 10-15 years ago, we were collectively laughing, most of the, for the most part, UFO experiencers as wacky or out there. And now, with the testimony of people like David Grush and Congress, and all of the validation that is happening right now for those who experienced things like chris and his family i thought it was the most timely conversation and a beautiful way to tie in themes that we've already been exploring so you can look forward to those episodes soon so again if you are interested in unlocking this full chat with zaz and i as well as future episodes of unbuttoned with molly and zaz you can join patreon And also, when you are a member, you receive over 115 hours of bonus content and all other full-length episodes of the podcast, you will receive a special private link added to your podcast player and the new and improved super premium submarine feed will emerge for you. So if that sounds interesting, go ahead and click the link in the episode description. Until then, never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weakness, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. And anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next time.